and a message. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. And in verse 5, we've already talked about the first four verses, a couple of sessions where we talked about God calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and told him to go. And Hebrews says that he left not knowing where he was going. That's the definition of walking by faith. Holding on to the promise of God as God gives him that covenant in verses 2, 3, and uh, where he... Uh, commands to him what he's going to do for him. And then that promise and covenant is repeated on three occasions, four occasions in Abraham's life to remind him that he will be a great nation. He'll be blessed. He'll have a great name. He will be a blessing to others and God will protect him. And so that's the promise that is given to him. So as Abraham gathers up his family and goes to this place that he doesn't know where he's going, he's just following by faith He holds on to the promise of God that God is the one who's going to sustain him. He's 75 years old in verse 4 when he makes this decision and he leaves to follow the Lord. Look down in verse 5. And Abraham took Sarai, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Here's their journey. They left. Verse 6, And Abram passed through the land into the place of Shechem, or Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he moved or removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. And pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Ha'ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still towards the south. So Abraham, Abram takes his wife, his nephew, and the souls that they had gotten in Haram, and they go forth. They go on this journey. And then they pass into this area of Shechem. They come into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites are, and the first place that they come, it geographically is the center of the promised land. If you're looking on a map, and in fact, it probably wouldn't hurt. How many, how many times do you actually look on your map? Do you know on the back of your Bible, most Bibles have a series of maps? Um, at least pretty much all the ones that I've had, unless you have one of those little small New Testament Bibles that you can barely read. Um, but it's there. But if you look in the back of your Bible, and you happen to have your maps in the back of your Bible, somewhere along there, there's, there's a map probably of the patriarchs or the maps of the 12 tribes of Israel in Canaan, um, or maybe even a map during the time of, um, of, of David's rule. But if you're looking on one of those maps, probably one of the earlier maps in that, uh, you will find uh, somewhere right smack dab in the middle of the map, north of Jerusalem, is the city of Shechem. And uh, it's on the west side of the Jordan River. 
And it kind of sits about the center of, of the, the, the map, uh, the land of Israel that you know. It's along a ridge. If you follow north of Shechem, you will go up to a, little, a city called Jezreel. That's at the top portion of the Jezreel Valley, south of, uh, southwest of the Dead Sea. If you follow from Jezreel, you go down, you'll find in almost like a straight line, there's Jezreel, Shechem, and if you go down from Shechem, you'll find a city called Bethel. Then the next city from Bethel is the city of Jerusalem. Then from Jerusalem, if you continue south, you go to Bethlehem, Hebron, all the way down a little bit west on the bottom portion is Beersheba. These cities from Jezreel, Shechem, Bethel, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron, and Beersheba are the backbone of the promised land. They're all in the hill country. Jezreel being in the top portion uh, where it starts in the hill country and Beersheba that ends up in the southern portions, the southern hill country, actually in the desert. You go down. And the verse in chapter, in verse 9 says, he went down south. And so Abraham is running, if you see in a map of the verses that I just read, he will run the full length from north to south. Not run, he's walking with his family. But I'm talking about he's travel. He's come into the promised land from the north and he's coming down. Goes through, he stops at Shechem first. Notice what he does in Shechem in this verse. It says here that it was there that the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed will I give. So here he comes to this name and, and in the King James it's Shechem. But it's, it's the same in the plain of Moriah. And the Canaanite were in that area and the Lord there appeared unto him. Now interesting this word appeared. This is the first time that God appears to Abram. You say, hold on, Pastor, didn't you mention in the earlier in the chapter, God had come to Abram before and called him out. He did, but the word appeared is not used. What did he do in verse 1? As Abram um, came, the Lord said to him. So here you have the Lord who said to him in Genesis 11 and verse 5, um, it, the, uh, this same word is used when God came down and saw the people of Babel. In chapter 12, in verse 5, this same word appear is the word, I will appear you a land. I will show you a land. It means to see. So before in chapter 12 and verse 1, he only heard God say, Remember I told you I didn't know how that happened. The scripture just said God spoke to Abram, told him to get out of the Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that he had promised him. Now, the first place that he stops and pitches his tent in Shechem, God appears to him. In other words, God showed more of himself to Abram once he obeyed. The first time God spoke. That was all he needed, the word and promise of God. He packs up his family, he leaves. He has the word of God, God spoke to me. The next time, God doesn't just speak to him, God appears to him. Now, I wish that Moses told, told us a little bit more about that, what appearing was. Was it through a burning bush? Was it through, um, you know, the captain of the Lord of armies like he does to Joshua? Was it 
in, in, a, in a person like Adam and Eve when they saw God walk in the coolness of the day? I don't know, but the meaning of it is he saw God. Earlier he heard God, now he has seen God. And, and this just is a, a, an application for us to understand. When we obey God in the life of faith, God shows us more of himself as we obey him. We get closer to him and closer to him as we walk by faith. Psalm 35 and verse 9 says, In your light we do see light. The psalmist, and he wrote in that, said, As we follow you, we see the light. And the more we see the light, the more light we see. Did I not share that, that with you in Jesus' statement this morning? That those who are receptive to the light are going to receive more light. And, and get closer, as they get closer with the word of God, and they get closer in their relationship with God, the more of God they see. The more of God is revealed to them as you walk by faith. And notice that God doesn't all just appear to him all at one time. All right, here's my whole self. Here's all my names. Here's all my characteristics. Here I am in just shining glory. And here's what it's going to be. And he just does it all for the first time right there in earth. No, he gives him just enough that he needs to trust God's word. Then the next step, God gives him a little bit more. Then the next step, God gives him a little bit more. And it's like this relationship that Abraham and God are getting closer and closer together. What does Abram do in this passage when he gets to this and, he, and God appears to him? Well, it says in the next verse, as the Lord appeared to him and said unto him, uh, I will give thee this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord. Where? At Shechem, who appeared unto him. So Abram now is showing an outward sign of his commitment to God. I belong to God. How does everybody know that Abram belongs to God? Give me these stones. Here, go. All right, I'm going to get this stone. Bring, the, bring me those stones. Okay, what are you doing? What, you know, his wife comes along and says, what are you doing, Abram? We don't, we don't even own this land. Okay, no, no, no. God said that he's going to, every place that I walk, he's going to give me this land. This is God's land now, and God's going to make me. Here's the promise. So what are you going to do? I'm going to make me an altar. And we're going to dedicate, and we're going to make a sacrifice, and we're going to tell everyone around here that we belong to Jehovah, and this land belongs to Jehovah. Notice that the verse says, and the Canaanites lived there. Who's, who's all in the villages all around? Abraham's not a, a, you know, a, a, a resident. He's a foreigner. He's, from the, he's not from around here. He's a stranger Coming through the land. And what is he doing building an altar? What is the purpose of building an altar? Well, first of all, he's given praise to God. Second of all, he's given a testimony to everyone around him that this is Jehovah and I serve Jehovah. The Canaanites served all kinds of gods. In fact, archaeology tells us that in this area there were already uh, idols to the pagan gods that were set up all over the place. And it's almost like Abraham moves in and starts pushing everybody else's idol aside and saying, hold on a second, let me, let me build you, build God an altar who is the creator and the only one that anybody should be serving. He builds it right there and, and gives glory to God. Abram would continue to go in his life of faith building altars for God. Everywhere Abram went, 
He built an altar. He built one in Hebron. He'll build one in the next city in Bethel. He builds one in Shechem. And he also builds one in a little hill called Moriah. Anybody know where Moriah is? Not Moriah over here. You remember he takes his son of promise and he walks up a mountain and the sun says, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the lamb? On the hill of Moriah? Right? That's going to be a significant place. In fact, you can read about it in the news this week. The only thing to remain from Abram's life physically for generations after him and the sign of his faith are the altars. In fact, there's a giant dome with gold over the top built over one of Abraham's altars. A few other places like Hebron and Bethel and Shechem, you can go to this day and see the places of the altars of Abram. Still after thousands of years. That is a sign thousands of years later of Abraham's faith. You see, faith always displays itself for others to see. By faith, Abram offered his son. It was his faith in the promise of God that caused him to do something to show that. And the altars were the outward sign of his inward belief. I belong to God. And I want everyone to know it. I'm going to build an altar. He moves in verse 8 to Bethel. And he pitched his tent. And having Bethel on one, the east, and high on the east and the west. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord. And he called on the name of the Lord there. Notice it's all capital. That means it's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. Now that's interesting because those of you that are Bible scholars recognize this place called Bethel is not actually called Bethel until Genesis 27. Before it was called Luz. You want to know what the word Bethel means? It means house of God. Jacob is the one who calls this place the house of God because he fell asleep and he dreamed and he saw a ladder that went up and angels coming up and down and Jacob changes the name of the place from, I believe it is Luz, to the place of Bethel. When Moses writes this, uh, this uh, narrative in Abram's life, he records a place name that hasn't been called that yet. Moses will do that on a couple other occasions too. Why does he write that? Because the later the Jewish readers who are reading this in the Exodus time period, who are reading the book of Genesis, are going to connect places with names that they know and they recognize that are called personally. So Moses comes back to this place and says, this place is called Bethel. And this is where Abram makes an altar to the Lord. And he makes this altar, and this time he calls on the name of Jehovah. Interesting as well, Jehovah is not the name of God giving unto the Jewish people until Moses meets God face to face at the burning bush. Remember, Moses said, what, what name do I give him? And he said, Yahweh, I am that I am, has sent you. So Moses is going back and recording it was Yahweh that met with Abram even though Yahweh has not revealed his name yet until Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
is just revealing some details here. Two points here. Shechem and Bethel were both known in the Canaanite ancient region as locations of worship to idols. The Canaanites were always worshiping idols in these locations. And Abram comes in the land, and what does he do? He builds an idol to Yahweh. Abram is publicly stating the name of the Lord at each one of these locations. He's a pioneer. He's a stranger. And as he comes into the promised land, it's like he's putting his flag down and he's saying, I stake this place in the name of Yahweh. Boom, there it is. It's like the flags on the moon. Or anywhere else Americans go, you know, that we, we claim for, you know, you know freedom and, and liberty. Abraham is going from place to place to these Canaanite cities that he's never been before and he's planting an altar and he's saying, this belongs to Jehovah. And so do I. How do you think that made the Canaanites feel? Who does he think he is? This is our land. Abraham says, no, I beg to differ. This is God's land. He can give it to anyone he wants to. They say, I have my own gods, and we can pray to our own gods. He said, yeah, but they're false gods. He's the one true God. You want to know what his name is? Yahweh, he's the creator. You should worship him at my altar. You see, God promised to make Abraham's name great in verse 2. But what is Abraham doing in Canaan? He's planting altars, and he's pointing people up to Yahweh, making God's name great. Making God's name great. One author stated, Abram spent his time making God famous in Canaan. Look at verse 9 as it says here. And Abram journeyed going on still towards the south. So he comes now all the way to the south. He's gone from the north tip of the promised land to the southern tip of Canaan. And what has he been doing? He's been building altars and telling people about Jehovah. And who he belongs to. Making God famous as he goes. And that's pretty good. That was what God intended Abram to do. Is to tell everyone about Jehovah. And, and remind them whose land this is. And uh, Abram becomes that. So he's, he's being a witness up and down to these Canaanite people. Who are one day going to experience the wrath of God. Because they choose to reject Abram and God instead of accept him. So from verses 10 down to verse 20, through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see how the mighty fall. National Park, uh, Park Statistics in 2016 said a total of 990 deaths were reported in national parks from 2014 to 2016, which equals to an average of 330 deaths per year. Or six deaths a week in national parks. The majority of all deaths, 79% of those deaths in national parks occur among males. In 2022, 12 deaths occurred in the Grand Canyon. Of those who fall from national parks to their death, many of them are young, adult, confident males. You read the story this week about the young man who was get, taking a selfie at one of the national parks just this week and was got a little bit too close to the edge and the portion of the edge collapsed under his weight and he fell to his death. Showing off, taking selfies, 
attempting cool things on rocks. On the National Grand Canyon National Park Rangers website, tips for coming to the Grand Canyon. Here is the quote, stay on designated trails. Walkways always keep a safe distance of at least six feet from the edge of any rim. In areas where there are railing and fencing, do not climb the barriers. Keep an eye on all the people in your group, especially small children. Make sure that your travel companions have both feet firmly planted on the pavement then developed trails at all times. Know where the edge is. Watch foot placement and look for trip hazards. Do not run, jump, perform physical stunts near any rim. Do not back up without first looking where you are going. That's on the National Park Rangers website for traveling to the national parks. You know, it is interesting how people of great confidence and great power fall. You see, the powerful are still have feet of clay. Giants and leaders will fall and will make mistakes. Models can crack and break under deep pressure. Those who we respect and those who we look up to will become shipwrecked. Many start out well, but don't always end well. We need to be careful we don't idolize people. We can respect them and we can love them, but we need to be careful of idolizing. What happens is when you idolize person, a person, a leader, or someone in, in, in leadership, is you expect more of them than what they actually can live out. Elijah was a man, the scripture says, of like passions as we are. This means he was a man just like any other man. Good God and the godly are human and imperfect as anyone else. Don't be disillusioned or even be disappointed. You see, in the passages in verse 10 through 20, Abraham stumbles and falls. We need to take heed lest we fall. Humility is realizing that we are all in this battlefield and we all need God's mercy and forgiveness and grace and enablement. And we must be careful where we step. How do the faithful fall? It happens when the faithful go from walking in faith to start walking in the flesh. You see, that's what happens with Abram. At one moment, he's going from city to city, building altars, claiming the land for Jehovah Yahweh, and living by faith and the promises of God, worshiping God, proclaiming the name of the Lord in the land, and then all of a sudden, he starts walking in, in, in the flesh, and it's a recipe for disaster. He gets afraid. And what happens? And we read the first blunder of a very faithful, godly man. Notice what he does. Let's read it. Verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. There's mistake number one. 
And it came to pass when he was come near into the end of Egypt, he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save you alive. So I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. There's mistake number two. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair, just like Abram said what happened. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What for? And he entreated Abram well for her sake. He, the Pharaoh, entreated Abram well for Sarai's sake. And he had sheep and oxen, and he had asses and men servants and maid servants, and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Abram? No, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Why didn't he just say because of Sarai? Why did he add the comma, Abram's wife? And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was your wife? Why sayest thou she's my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife. Take her and get out of here. Go your way. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Look down at verse 1, chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him in the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And I think maybe just verse 3 we should see was his full circle. And, and he went on his journeys from the south even back to Bethel. So let me just mention this before we close this evening. Abram experienced fear because a famine came into Abram's life. Here in his personal life, he was walking with God. God told him that he would be with him in the land and he would follow God anywhere. He sent him down, in verse 9, to the Negev, the desert in the south. Do you know what's in the desert? Sand. There's not much in the desert. The desert is a hard place to pitch your tent. I would rather be in the hill country of Bethlehem and in the nice area of Galilee and in the, uh, in the plains of the sea than be in the desert in the south. But that's where God led him. In the desert, he was still in the promised land. This is the desert place that God is going to now test Abram and his faith. You know what God will do in your walk of faith? God will put you in a place where he will test you in your faith. All right? Do you really Believe in me. Are you really going to follow me? Walking in a life of faith is not going to be a bed of roses. You will be tested. Abraham has already been tested by leaving his home. Now God will test him again. Everywhere that Abraham goes, Abram goes, God tests him. You see, the life of faith is a life constantly being tested. 
God is the one that sends the test. What is the test? The famine in the land. What does Abraham do? What does he do when the test comes in? Now, I want to remind you as well, God will often send the test and the famine in your life as well. It's by the hand of the Lord. It's by God. Say, so how could God be so mean to send me something like this? He doesn't tempt any man to evil, but he will test. He will put you in a difficult situation that may be scary and hard and difficult that you don't like. To be in the book of Genesis in a famine, and this verse says it was a great famine, so it's not just any famine. It means great. And if the Bible says it's great and it's varied, then it means it's great and it's fair, very. What do you do when it seems like you don't know what to do? What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you worry? This is a serious problem. Famines mean death. He couldn't just go down to Walmart and pick up his supplies. This was, this was a serious situation. What would you do? Can God prove to me that he can provide for me and my family when this ham, famine hits? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can, when times seem dark and the way seems impossible and the testing is hard, will God come through? You see, this testing forced Abraham to choose. Will I trust God in the difficulty and believe the promise that he gave me? I will protect you. I will make your name great. I will give you a seed. I will make you a great nation. I will provide for you. Where? In the land. Um, Not one time for the rest of the chapter does, does it say anything about Abram building an altar or saying a prayer or talking with God. Not once. All of a sudden, he goes from talking with God, building altars, God appearing to him, speaking to him, promises, God said this, God said that. He's talked to God, this is the name of the Lord, to all of a sudden, a testing comes, a famine comes, and not once does he pray. Not once does he plead. Not once does he fast. Not once does he build an altar. Not once does it say in this passage that he comes to God for anything. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. James chapter 1 and verse 5, three verses later. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You know what Abram should have done? When the difficulty came, he should have got on his knees and prayed to the God that he could trust. But instead of doing that, when the hard times come and the pressure came in and the famine was too great, instead of Abraham turning to God and trusting God in the difficulty, Abram ran to Egypt. Panic set in. Instead of trusting God to provide for him, he said, I can't trust God to provide for me in the famine. I'll have to go to Egypt and figure this out myself. Have you ever been there? God sends a test and you start living in fear and the flesh kicks in and you start doing things by emotion rather than the promise of God. And you get yourself in all kinds of problems and struggles. God never told Abram to go to Egypt. Where did God say that he would provide for him? He said he would provide for him in the land, not in Egypt. So why does he run to Egypt? Because he started to live in fear. You see, when the flesh takes over and becomes your master, 
you become a servant to sin and you do things that are foolish. Egypt often in the scripture represents the world and the pleasures of the world. Egypt stands for dependency upon the things of the world and not on God. Isaiah 31 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt. Where is your faith in times of hardship? On top of that, not only does he fear for his personal life, but he also fears for his personal loss, life and limb. His second mistake comes when he is living in the flesh and the life of flesh and not in faith, and he starts panicking, so he begins to lie. Verses 11 through 13, once he gets to Egypt, he's already walking a pattern of the flesh. One sin leads to the next. You see, what happens when you begin to live in the flesh is more flesh comes out. It starts in the head, doubting God's promises, then it leads to the hands and the feet, then to the mouth and the tongue. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Say, you are not my wife but you are my sister. Samson did this, David did this, Jonah did this, Elijah did this. All of them in the wrong place, in the wrong time, getting into trouble. You see, our worst enemy is ourselves. Notice when you start walking in the flesh, it affects the relationships around you. Your wife, your children, your neighbors. Did you know that the stupid decisions that you make Affects those around you. Why on the world are you in Egypt if you think that your wife is going to be in danger? Why even take her there? Why do you think his wife feel what do you think his wife feels like once she ends up in Pharaoh's palace in his house in a line of other women? And Abram's over in the pub on Pharaoh's bill and tab enjoying his life. How's that going for you, Abram? How does your wife feel about you now? Verse 16 says that he was treated Abram well for her sake. This life is going pretty well for Abram right now. Swindoll says this in a cautious way. Abram says this, Abram is living a pimp while his wife is living in fear of your purity. She is in danger. And where is Abram? Safe. At least he thinks. You see how sin can make you feel good and give you pleasure for a season and is detrimental to all around you until eventually it catches up to you? Beware. Walking in the flesh caused Abram to be a hypocrite. He pretended to be what he was not. Oh, she's just my sister. I'm her brother. No, no, that, that's not completely true. You see, Abram was pretending to be something that he wasn't. And God knew it. He was treated great, and he got what he wanted at the cost of her. So in verse 16, the Lord, the Scripture says, the Lord sent a plague on Egypt. Somehow plagues in Egypt have a lot to do with one another. Why? God intervenes. God intervenes, yes, for Abram, but the verse says he intervenes for Sarai, who's Abram's wife. You see, God tells the truth about who Sarai is, while Abraham is lying about his wife. 
She's my sister. God says, "Mm mm-mm, she's your wife. Abram had been pretending that she was his sister and God stands up for Sarai and protects her because Abram had failed his duty as a husband. These plagues do two things. Number one, they protect Sarai. They keep Pharaoh away from her. Number two, they reveal Abram's sin. And number three, they're good for all of God's people. It's, it, it's the betterment for Abram and Sarah. You see, God stepped in to protect his promise. Abram's getting ready to mess up the promise of God. God told him, I'll give you and Sarah a seed. Now Sarah's in line for that to be messed up. And Abram's put her there. And God says, I'm going to have to step in, Abram, because you're being foolish. God protecting his name and his promise over the case of Abram's foolishness and his sin. One rebuke. How embarrassed was Abram when Pharaoh came to him and said, what are you doing? You see, friendship with the world will always shame your testimony, shame the name of the Lord, and embarrass you and hurt others around you. Abram left Egypt completely humiliated. God knows, in Genesis 13, verses 1 through 3, he realizes his mistake and embarrassed at living in the flesh. And where does he go back to? He goes back to Bethel, where he had called upon the name of the Lord. You see, when we fall, what do we do? We get back up and we run back to the Lord. So it's interesting that as we get into this chapter, we realize here's a man who's so great, a man of great faith. I mean, he made this major decision at 75 years old to become something that he was very uncomfortable with, to go to a land he had never gone before, that he had no idea, and he was to live by faith in the promises of God. Now he's being a testimony up and down the Holy Land, planting these, uh, these idols, uh, these altars, and giving praise to God in, in all the things that God is doing in his life. And one moment of doubt, discouragement, and disbelief of God's word Calls him a series of one drastic decision after another. And I'm sure Sarai never let it down. One of the things that's pointed out in chapter 13 is the fact that when Lot turns about and looks, Lot sets his tent towards Sodom because it reminded him of Egypt. A disastrous mistake that Abram would make that would have consequences that would last for a lifetime. Father, I pray as we close tonight. Lord, my heart is, is just so broken by reading a passage where great men fall, like David and Samson and Elijah. And now we see Abram. But Lord, I'm so thankful that when we fall, you are there to forgive us, you're there to protect us so it's not as bad as what it could be. And you're there to bring back glory to your name and, and to, to, because your name is very important. Your testimony is very important. What a blunder that we can, uh, we can cause uh, when, when we get all twisted up in the flesh. And how many people we can hurt, family and friends and uh, children and grandchildren, uh, so many that can, that can be hurt by one lie, one, one hip, hypocritic moment 
where we pretend to be what we're not, thinking that we're getting away with it. And we can't enjoy the pleasures of sin just for a season. But eventually our sins will find us out. You love us too much to let us continue to roam. Uh, Lord, help us to remember that, um, uh, how important it is that we live a life of faith and don't, don't begin patterns of acting in the flesh. In Jesus' name that we pray.